Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. And uh, today, before I begin, I want to uh, remind you that there's a website associated with this podcast. It's wealthformula.com. And if you want to participate in any of our upcoming deal flow or want to potentially uh, get some of the resources that are not uh, available on the podcast itself, that's where you want to head. Specifically, you may want to consider joining the Investor Club, the Accredited Investor Club, uh, if you have not done so and you are an accredited investor. Now, you may see deal flow on our regular list. However, those typically are of a certain variety that are that we can actually show to non-accredited investors, but only accredited investors can invest. But there is another set of investments that are only privately within that investor club group. And so if you want to sign up for that, make sure you go to wealthformula.com. Today's show is an is a interesting one. I had a really uh, fun conversation with this guest who is uh, who talked about Ray Dalio and it made me think, uh, you know, about my own situation. Okay. Here's the deal. I'll be completely frank with you. My social life kind of sucks right now. I moved to Montecito in 2017 from Chicago. And at that time I was married, had three little girls. And when he got here, like everybody else, you know, we didn't know anybody and I didn't know anyone. And luckily I had my family, and uh, was frankly plenty entertained by my uh, three little girls. Uh, my now uh, ex-wife also served as a social coordinator, and many of you men out there know how that goes. Uh, then the beginning of COVID happened. Uh, my marriage came to an end, and then since moving to Montecito, as it turned out, I'd really just been working from home on businesses that had become very successful, but you know I hadn't worked on my social life at all because that had, uh, you know, that had been outsourced or neglected and put on the back burner. And of course, again, that is probably something that, you know, a number of you feel like, you know, that, that, that's kind of where you're at. Like you work from home, but then ultimately maybe you have, uh, somebody who keeps you, you know, your, your, your spouse keeps your, your, uh, your social life alive. Anyway, I entered COVID isolation with almost no community or outside uh, or life outside of business. And needless to say, it was a lonely time. And the only good thing that came from it really was a lot of success 
in those businesses that had really started since 2017. The thing is that, you know, COVID for the most part, this whole COVID thing, it's, it's been over for, uh, the isolation part at least has been over for, you know, about a year or, uh, or more. Uh, and that excuse is gone. And the truth of the matter is that my social life still pretty much sucks. I, I have not been successful in that aspect of my life. That is an admission. Okay. So I'm not a good person to tell you how to create a successful social life and will not be writing a book about that anytime soon. So why am I telling you all this anyway? I mean, yeah, I'm not telling you this as a as some sort of suicide uh, a note or something like that. I'm I'm too busy with my longevity podcast trying to figure out how to live longer. So that's not the point. What I'm I'm trying to do here is simply to illustrate to you using my own example that you can be wildly successful in one aspect of your life and and abject failure in other parts and. And it's, you know, and, and that's just the way it normally goes. And the funny thing is that for anyone successful out there, and I mean externally, you're watching them on TV, you're reading books about them, they're, it's really difficult to assess what's really going on there, right? I mean, take a look at Tony Robbins. He's a success, right? He's a great communicator. No doubt he's helped a lot of people, made a lot of money. I have a lot of respect for Tony Robbins. But you know what? He's also been married a couple times, more than a couple times, I think three times. And who knows how his relationships are with his children and, and, and other stuff like that. We don't know. But if Tony Robbins wrote a book on marital bliss, guess what? It would be a New York Times bestseller. Why? Because he's Tony Robbins and he is a successful guy. And that's what people want. They want to listen to successful people because it is a it's easier just to look at as an individual as a success rather than trying to pull them apart and as you know and as i know that there's uh in any given individual there is a lot of complexity there right but it's just you know it's it's easier when you look at these people on the screen or famous people whatever just to see them as a single a uh, monolithic kind of character, a successful character, okay? So why do I bring this up? Well, uh, let's talk, we're going to talk today about legendary hedge fund manager Ray Dalio. Now, he's written a, uh, multiple books on what he calls principles, okay? So he had principles of investing, and then he had one on, you know, life in general. And I will say this, is that, you know, whatever the, uh, whatever is, is said in this podcast, there's no question that Ray Dalio is certainly qualified as anyone else to talk about money. I mean, he's done, you know, really well for people and he, he you know, he, he has been successful, no doubt about that. But, but why? But, but he writes this book, Principles, that just about life in general. What do we know about Ray Dalio? Uh, that would make us think that he is successful in anything else. In fact, I would say that what we know right now, there are plenty of people who've worked uh, with and for him who consider his principles outside of investing to be a failure at best and maybe even downright fraudulent at worst, right? So why would people buy books from Ray Dalio that don't involve money? 
because again, he's a hugely successful person and people want to learn how to be successful. The challenge for everyone, including me, is to look at God-like figures and understand that they are human with all sorts of flaws. And, and while we may be able to learn some things from them, which in, w- in which they excel at least, we shouldn't translate success in certain parts of their lives to suggest that they got it all figured out. And my guest on Wealth Formula podcast today, he actually went out and wrote a book on Ray Dalio. And he tells the story of a man who may be quite different from the image that he actually creates for himself. And it, it certainly pushed a lot of buttons uh, on Ray Dalio as he actually threatened to sue this guy uh, and, and, and actually threw a bunch of fiery accusations uh, back at him. It is a truly fascinating story. This is a fun listen. So make sure uh, you listen to Rob Copeland, who's the uh, author who has pissed off Ray Dalio after these messages. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Rob Copeland. Rob is a finance reporter for the New York Times. He was previously the longtime hedge fund beat reporter at the Wall Street Journal and has also covered Silicon Valley and the hidden worlds of the wealthy and powerful. He is the author of The Fund, Ray Dalio, Bridgewater Associates, and the Unraveling of a Wall Street Legend. Rob, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so this is a fascinating topic. So, um... Uh, let's start with this topic. Well, I mean, why, why, uh, why write a book about, well, first of all, maybe just for people who don't know, because not everybody's sitting there uh, looking at uh, who the greatest hedge fund managers of all time and all that kind of thing, but maybe just tell us a little bit about who Ray Dalio is and why you, descri- uh, you decide to write a book about him. Sure. And, you know, I, I would probably agree with someone who doesn't spend their whole life uh, thinking about <laughs> hedge fund managers, because I don't either. Yeah. The, the fascinating thing about Ray is that though he's the founder of the world's biggest hedge fund, Bridgewater Associates, he's really become famous as more of a self-help guru. Yeah. He, uh, he's, over the last two decades, he's made a name for himself for these so-called principles. He wrote a book called Principles, Life and Work. And he's had TED Talks and been interviewed by everyone on earth. And what he essentially says is these rules that made me rich and famous, if you follow them, uh, you too can be rich too. Um, And sort of the reveal and the fun of the book is that, of course, behind closed doors, he's nothing like the character that he plays in all of those interviews. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so what got you interested in writing this? Like what, what, uh, I mean, what's the background here? So, like, frankly, many people, when I first heard of Ray Dalio, I was interested in it because I said, uh, 
well, this guy seems to have something different about him. The, the yeah. principles that he talks about so much are all about, you know, speaking honestly. And his famous one is pain plus reflection equals progress. So I found that there's something honestly appealing about his whole um, uh, outlook on life. Uh, and then, you know, as a journalist, it's my job not just to talk to the firm founder, but to talk to, you know, everyone around him. And just the more famous he got and the more he kept talking about the principles, the bigger the divergence between uh, what he was talking about and uh, what he was actually like. Um, it, it sort of, by the time I decided to write the book, there really have been two Ray Dalios. There's, uh, there's the character he plays and there's, there's the truth of it. Um, and so that makes for a really fun yeah. book. Okay, so let's start with what the, you know, maybe some of the, the highlights of the external character, this character that's projecting out and writing books and, you know, talking about principles. Give us, give us some of, sort of the highlights of what that person was projected out to the world. If you listen to Ray Dalio's version of Ray Dalio, he is sort of uh, this generous uh, multi-billionaire with lessons to teach the world. So he's already a billionaire by the mid-2000s as a, as a hedge fund manager, and he comes up with these things called principles to explain his success. Um, he becomes incredibly famous uh, in 2008 because uh, he's able to say that he predicted the the housing crash, um, which, as I get to it in the book, is not necessarily the full the full story. But the reason that he's become, you know, he goes to White House state dinners, um, travels all over the world, um, is because he really is able to say that I, Ray Dalio, have a system. I have an investment system. That's how I became rich. And I have a system for how I have, you know, conquered my own instincts that you two should should follow and look he's not the only sort of famous wealthy figure who in recent years has decided that um that even more so than being rich what he really wants is you know to be liked and loved yeah or or of of material uh of, of recognized i guess of same i mean you get some sort of the elon musk uh element there right i mean where you the guy's abs absolutely brilliant and he's doing incredible things but all of a sudden he's become this public persona it's almost like this desire of uh to, to be relevant in the public uh discourse well elon's kind of funny too right because yeah. elon is he's i don't know exactly how to make an electronic vehicle electric vehicle <laughs> right, i certainly right. don't know how to make rockets which for his spacex i don't know how to implant chips in someone's brain as Neuralink. But yet what Elon loves to talk about is Twitter, yeah. which we can all relate to, <laughs> yeah, right? I understand right. what Twitter is. I know yeah. what it's like to just uh, talk constantly and give my opinion. So um, Ray is a bit like that, too, in the sense that he he never really quite says anything salient about investing or yeah. really anything specific about how to make money. But he has lots to say about um you know, how to fight between these two sides of your brain and how to be, as, as he would say, achieve a meaningful life. In your research, do you get a sense for, you know, what 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 do you think made him ultimately maybe the most successful hedge fund manager ever, possibly? I don't, or, or you know, there's what, what made him successful? What was the reality of what made him successful? So this is sort of the oldest story ever told, um, and it's not just a Ray Dalio one. Because when Ray talks about his upbringing and how he became so successful, he, he gives a pull myself up by the bootstraps story. You know, he says 
He grew up uh, the son of a jazz musician. He lost his mother when he was young. He finds his way to Harvard Business School, and he starts this hedge fund, Bridgewater, out of his apartment. Now, that's all true, but what he leaves out of the story are these huge gaps where he ingratiates himself to a wealthy New York family and becomes their sort of surrogate son. They help him uh, get his start on Wall Street. He marries into the Vanderbilt Whitney's, um, you know, maybe the most famous uh, uh, fortune in America. He also, for decades, learns that when you're already rich, the the most appealing story to tell is that you are going to protect someone from losing their money. You know, hyper wealthy people often are very concerned with becoming poor. Um, they're not necessarily as concerned with becoming even even richer. And so Ray just tells this story over and over and over again about how he will protect you from ruin, that, you know, there's a doomsday coming around the corner mm-hmm. and that Ray Dalio and Bridgewater Associates uh, will, will save you. Let's kind of, I, I guess, okay, so let's talk a little bit about some of the things he talks about. Um, alpha versus beta returns. What's that all about? Oh, gosh. And now and you, that sound you just heard was everyone clicking the, the podcast off um, for Conan <laughs> O'Brien. He's a friend. The, oh, okay. uh, <laughs> the, so at, at Alpha and Beta is sort of one of those Wall Street jargons that uh, financial advisors love to use to convince you why you need to pay them um, for help. Um, it's actually a very simple concept. Um, beta is just the amount of money that you can make just by investing in the market, you know, just by buying U.S. stocks, a big basket of every stock. That's beta. Alpha is sort of the extra juice. It's the extra amount that a talented stock picker, for instance, uh, can make you over the market. Every stock picker or investment manager is going to tell you that they um, are very good at alpha. Sure. No one says, no one says I can't produce (laughs) alpha. Right, right, right. The, The trick is actually finding and predicting the people who are going to produce alpha. Right. So was there some special sauce that Ray Dalio had for, for being the alpha picker? So particularly uh, decades ago uh, in the eighties, nineties, and maybe part of the two thousands, Ray was very early to figuring out that having an investment system, having a set of rules uh, could be a very profitable way to make money as opposed to, you know, being someone who just says, oh, my instincts and ideas will rule the day. Um, you know, in, until very recently, actually, you could have very successful traders who claim to be able to read the tape, which is essentially they claim to be able to see the volume of stocks, stock trading and to sort of divine what was going to happen next. Mm-hmm. Um, so to Ray's credit and to Bridgewater's credit, uh, that was never how he claimed to make money. Um, now, over the past 10, 15 years, ironically, as Ray has become more and more famous, um, his funds have done worse and worse. Uh, and I don't think it takes um, a PhD to figure out the relationship there. Yeah, what it, and, and tell, us, tell us what the relationship is. Is it just eye off the ball? Is it what, what, what do you think is going on there? Well, there's no doubt that for the past, say, 15, 20 years, uh, Ray's animating uh, motive, his animating impulse has been to spread the gospel of himself and the principles. And behind closed doors at Bridgewater, he has shown absolutely no interest in learning anything new about investing. Uh, keep in mind now, and again, I know that, you know, we're not talking to an investing audience here, but just imagine that you refuse to use email 
and you still sent letters back and forth. It's not that you wouldn't communicate eventually, but you know, you, you'd have missed out on sort of the last 20 years of technology. It's, it's not a bad analogy for what, what Ray has done at, at Bridgewater. He just sort of stopped developing and learning at, at some point um, because it was a lot more fun to travel the world and tell people um, about his principles. Yeah. Okay. So now we've got the principles. We've got this character, this person that he has um, projected to the world who's like, as you've discussed, is sort of this um, benevolent billionaire, wants to teach you how to do what he's done, the ragged riches story, and has all these principles behind them. And there and and I think what your what your book's about is this disparity between that story and what you discovered um, when you started asking people that worked with him. So tell us a little bit about what you know what that disparity was. So key to uh, the the so called principles, and I say so called because Ray is always adding and subtracting to them. Um, it's quite convenient, you know. Whenever anything doesn't go his way, he's able to say, "There's there's a new principle now." He's just thought of it. And a key to this is something called radical transparency. He's become sort mm-hmm. of very famous for this, where everything at Bridgewater is, can be taped and, uh, and viewed by, by everyone. So that sort of um, there's no such thing as a small problem because we can always go back and rewind the tape and, and get to the, the core of things. Um, again, if I say this, it doesn't sound crazy, right? There's, there's an appeal to, to, to that sort of surveillance um, but what Ray does is he, uh, using the principles, he starts to create these case studies of using these tapes where he edits everyone around him to basically look like a buffoon and edits himself to look like the savior. So that over and over again, he's able to show people, hey, if you had just embraced the principles, if you had just embraced my rules, um, we would have done things better. There are hundreds of principles, and I won't go over all of them, but I think the most salient one is one that he comes up relatively early, which is that at Bridgewater, people have to be willing to humiliate themselves to get at the truth. And it's fair to say that in the decade or so I've spent reporting on Bridgewater, I haven't found too many examples of um, Ray Dalio humiliating himself to get at the truth, but I have ample examples of others at Bridgewater um, who have been humiliated by Ray to, um, for, frankly, his pleasure. Can you give us an example? Sure. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I love so many of these. The, the, probably the, one of the strangest is that at one point uh, Ray is using a whiteboard um, and he can't uh, erase the marker um, on it. And rather than you know, one, consider that maybe he might have picked up a permanent marker by accident. Or two, you know, we've all gone through our day and small things can sometimes go awry. He starts this huge investigation of his facility staff and he hauls in the head of facilities and they order every possible whiteboard on the market. And he's he's demonstrating, you know, how could you be so stupid as to order the wrong one? And this becomes a, a six-week ongoing soap opera case at, at Bridgewater. Um, and this is what so many, um, Bridgewater employees will tell me it's, there's no winning these, these cases, you know, all you can do is sort of fall on the sword over and over and over again, humiliate yourself so that Ray can claim that you should have done your job better. Right. 
And and so was there because of that? Because I guess these uh, humiliation and all that was there a, a fair amount of attrition? And I mean, were, was there a lot of people moving in and out of that space? Or there is. So there is a, fa- a ton of attrition at Bridgewater, but I want to just go back to something that the the principles prescribe a way for you to achieve a higher level version of yourself. So to give up, to quit, it's not just to get a different job, but also basically to say, I'm not interested in learning anymore from our charismatic leader. So it can be very hard for people, even over years, to realize that that Ray's sort of investigations of them and his constant harping on their weaknesses might not actually be an attempt um, to, uh, to help them in, in their lives. So many people who were there, whether for a day, a week, or or 10 years, um, it's not until after they leave that they realize sort of how much time they they just wasted. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious um, on something, which is, you know, my I don't follow him closely, but, uh, you know, one thing that I, it seems to me that, you know, he, he, he reminds me a little bit of, like, Jim Rogers, uh, George Shore's old uh, partner, who's um, every time I, you know, see him a video of him, he's talking about like the zombie apocalypse, Uh, you know, essentially Mm -hmm. it's a doom and gloom thing. Like, and this is pretty, pretty typical of, of, you know, where where his stance is. Most of the time I see him talking about how things are about to go, you know, uh, to hell. And, and he's, he seems to be wrong an awful long, a lot, a lot of the time. And I'm not saying that, you know, listen, it's nobody, you know, nobody's that good at predicting the future, uh, but uh, he's supposed to be, right? So how can you be wrong that much and <laughs> do so well in a hedge fund? I mean, I'm just curious sure. on that. Well, first of all, that was actually a reveal for me. Uh, when I was working on this project, I did something that I, I hope no one ever does again, which is that my research assistant and I went back and we read every media interview he'd ever given. Um, and it turns out he's been predicting essentially the zombie apocalypse right. without interruption um, for 50 years. <laughs> so when um, this goes, by the way, right up to the present, it, it yeah. still very recently predicted a civil war in America, World War Three. Yeah, it's probably his most enduring legacy is that he is a master marketer. Um, it's it's not that different, frankly, from when you go bring your car to the shop and you think that the windshield wipers are broken and the mechanic says, actually, you need a whole new car and I'm going to sell you one. Um, I, that could, that analogy would have been better if it wasn't a mechanic, but a dealership. But right. I think I think people get what I'm saying. But the this is what he's been doing and saying. So every 10 years or so, you know, the market markets go in cycles and Every 10 years or so, there's going to be a downturn. Right. Ray is always able to say he predicted it. And then he just doesn't talk about the nine prior years where he made the same prediction. Right. And um, everything turned out okay. Yeah, there is that element. I think there's a number of of people in the system that kind of, uh, you know, they rely on that old idea that, you know, even a broken clock is right a couple times a day. You know, so, sure. so, so yeah, it's, but it's interesting to put that together with, you know, the success, because I can see how that, that would work really well from the marketing play, as you were talking about before with, you know, ultra wealthy people, if you don't want to lose your wealth, that's your primary 
objective to, you know, give your money to somebody who's hyper cautious and says, I know things are going, uh, going to go south and I know what to do with your money. That certainly brings money into the fund. But then how do you turn around and make that, you know, make, make money on that? I guess the bottom line is that's that's the really the question is I, he did do something I presume unless you can you know tell me otherwise that that seemed to be successful and you know did, that did seem to make people money um, uh, disproportionately sure now remember that markets generally go up over time that right doesn't mean this isn't financial advice no one should put their money yes. in the market today and say Rob Copeland said, yeah yeah um, I'll be I'll be rich so. Although uh, Bridgewater has failed to keep pace with the markets, um, they have generally had positive investment performance. So the real question um, for a Bridgewater client then is how much of the upside am I willing to give up um, in order to have this ostensible downside? And remember that an investment manager is going to charge you a flat fee just for managing your money. So every year that you keep your money with them, they make money no matter what. Right. Um, and a hedge fund like Bridgewater is also going to keep some of that upside, sure. some of that beta, as we, we talked about. So it uh-huh. can be less about actually making money and more about the marketing of getting you to keep your money. Who wants to pull your money from Ray Dalio's firm? I mean, he's world famous. He has TED Talks. He meets presidents. Um, that becomes, frankly, more important than the actual details of what Bridgewater does or doesn't do with the money. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay, so you, uh, <laughs> he, he doesn't like this book that you wrote, right? So, um, shocker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. I think he, um, he's threatened you, uh, with some, uh, litigation, things like that. What, what, so how did, when did this start? How did this start? And I'm curious, just like sure. you're sitting in your apartment there and you go, oh, it looks like Ray Dalio wants to sue me. <laughs> and that can't feel good, right? But, but yeah, tell us how well, it all I, happened. Well, first of all, Ray is universally outraged by any journalist or employee or friend of the family who doesn't think that he's the greatest uh, thing that's ever come down from the mountaintop. So I don't take it personally. Yeah. Um, I will say when I, I first uh, signed a contract for this book uh, about three and a half years ago, um, and Ray was the first person I told because I wanted just to be above board, you know, I'm not looking to slink around here. And he immediately started threatening me before there was a word written. He hired first one law firm, then two law firms, then three law firms. They threatened me with a multi-billion dollar lawsuit, which is like a little bit amusing, to be honest, because... Before you had even written a word? Correct. Um, Yeah, they just had an outline that I had shopped to to publishers. And threatening me with a multi-billion dollar lawsuit is a waste of, you know, a zero. You can threaten me with a multi-million dollar one. It has the same effect (laughs) on me and my 20 pound dog, believe me. Um, The, but he's gone to great lengths considering that his principles are all about openness and so-called transparency and truth. He will do anything to stop people from saying um, their actual experience with him. Um, At at one point, uh, actually, at several points in for the book, you know, people told me that the scenes you're writing about, they were recorded. Um, so why don't you just ask Bridgewater for a recording of them so that you can, you know, describe them. And Ray never seemed to uh, get back to me on, on that. You know, we asked, um, I think he was counting on, on bullying and intimidating me um, like he has so many other people. 
but not to be super jingoistic here, the United States of America is a great place to be a journalist. Um, it's a great place to be an author. And um, we've got the best laws on earth. Um, as long as I am telling the truth, which I am, you cannot come after me just because it's unflattering to you. Yeah. Although the, you can, and I think maybe what he was trying to do, and this is, um, you know, the legal system is very much, uh, um, it's an expensive place to be. And, and you, you know, defending yourself and having to hire attorneys and all that kind of stuff. Have you had to deal with, with you know, a lot of those expenses or, or what have you? Well, thank, thank goodness my publisher is a major publisher. So they have first amendment attorneys yeah. who are used to this. If, if I had had to respond to his hundreds of pages of legal letters from three different law firms, um, I would have been bankrupt very fast. Uh, there is, if, if he actually did try to sue me, which, uh, he won't, um, he, uh, I could, I could counter sue him for my costs, but you're absolutely right. It was, it would squeeze me dry, um, in, in a second, anyone who was less than a New York times or wall street journal reporter who didn't have a book contract from a major publisher, you would just have no, you'd have no shot. Now, my producer was telling me that you had actually, um, when you were out, coming out of college, you actually interviewed, uh, with Dalio's firm. Is that right? I did. I, this has been one of his favorite uh, cudgels. Uh -huh. the, uh, he's been, he's been using this now for 10 years. When I was 23, actually, um, I, like many people, uh, my first job wasn't my favorite job. And I interviewed at what must've been every firm in the tri-state area, in the New York uh -huh. area, um, hedge funds, uh, banks, talent agencies, that sort of thing. And I interviewed at Bridgewater um, at 23 and I didn't get the job. I think I had two interviews. I don't remember anything about it besides that they were polite. Um, and then later in my career, many years later, uh, I, I became a reporter who was covering them. And um, Ray has been trying to use this against me for, uh, I think, seven, eight years now. At one point, he went to the editor-in-chief of the Wall Street Journal when I was working there, and he threatened to release the recordings of my interviews. And the editor-in-chief uh, said to him, um, if the reveal is that a journalist has considered higher paying work um, <laughs> elsewhere at age 23, um, then go ahead. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, he wants to make it about me versus yeah. him, but it's really not, you know, I'm not a character in this book. I don't, um, I don't come in and save the yeah. day. Uh, this is about what he's like and what, yeah. uh, what frankly people who buy into his self-help um, mantra um, really experience. So just to be clear, he's claiming that this is, you know, book in part was because you were angry that you didn't get a job or something like that. Or what, what yeah, it's a, what's the interview part of this? Did you say you said something stupid or <laughs> like that? No, he he can embarrass you about? cut it. He what? Yeah. He says, I've been on a, he says, I've been on a 15 year crusade to, because I did, I did two interviews, um, at age 23. And what I kind of want to say is, well, I actually interviewed at so many places back then that if I've been on a crusade against every job I didn't get, I've got like hundreds of books to write. <laughs> right, I really got to right. get on that. Right, right, um, right. But at any rate, it's it's a distraction is what it is because sure. um, he doesn't have the facts on his side. So, you know, that's what they do. They just attack. Well, is there, so, you know, I guess from the, the take home on this, um, I guess the question is what can investors really, like I guess at any level, learn if anything from uh dalio and bridgewater and from from your experience in the book like what can you what can you take home from this if you are a 
you mm. know, retail investor, maybe you're even, you know, at that level where you might be investing in a fund like Dalio's. Like, what is, is there take homes here? Definitely, definitely. Uh, well, first of all, I would say the book is mostly not about finance. It's actually a fun read. Uh -huh. um, it's sort of about uh, what happens to people when they give up their own values and adopt um, that there um, of their leaders. So um, I think that's a lesson for all of us, frankly. Um, I hope it's assigned reading in high schools. The um, On an investing standpoint, honestly, it is a good reminder that uh, that you, the, the person who's giving the money, you are the product. Um, so they're selling you. So when someone tells you they have a secret investment system that they won't show you, but you'll just have to trust them because they're rich, um, I would I would take a second look at that and make sure that um, that that there really is a, a system. I think it's also a reminder that um, one good year, five good years, ten good years of investment performance um, does not actually mean that much in the long term. That these huge firms, um, just because they seem very safe, uh, that can actually distort their incentives. So. You know, Bridgewater hasn't, since Bridgewater became the world's largest hedge fund, it has performed um, worse than most other hedge funds. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the biggest, safest choice isn't always. Is it, is it even beat, beating the S&P 500? Just, you know, oh my gosh, nowhere close. Nowhere. Not even close. Huh. I, probably no one who listens to this podcast has, has performed worse than Bridgewater Associates um, in the past 15 years. Um, you're just not famous for it. Um, <laughs> The, there's there's a moment in the book when someone tries to challenge Ray. This actually happens twice, and he says, "If if you're so smart, why aren't you rich?" And so, to me, that is just a, a lesson for all time. Which is, if if we are if we are connecting wealth with smarts, um, then I think you're going to go down a very a very dark path very fast. Yeah, and I think the lesson here too is. You know, I guess there's there's these different there's there's these different geniuses that people have, and try not to mistake one for another, right? I mean, he's clearly got this, you know, marketing, uh, you know, marketing genius. I think there's a, a lot of people like that, right? Who've got these tremendous mm -hmm. abilities to to bring people in their direction, but I mean, do they have anything special to offer outside of their own charisma? Or is it just the charisma that you're buying into, right? And oh, absolutely, yeah. And and he remember he he loves to say that he doesn't care about money. Yeah, he loves to say just he happens to buy the most expensive home in America, but he's just another regular guy. I am so skeptical now of of famous business leaders who say that it just happened. It's just a convenient accident yeah. that they became rich. Yeah, um, I don't think that's intellectually honest. Yeah. Yeah, most business books kind of are, uh, I, I always kind of uh, snicker at them myself. So anyway, hey, this has been really uh, fun to talk about, Rob. And, uh, you know, good luck with the book. I'm, again, it is the fund, uh, Ray Dalio, Bridgewater Associates, and the Unraveling of a Wall Street Legend. Uh, you can find out more about the book at bridgewaterbook.com backslash the uh, hyphen writer. Um, I'm a, I, no, I, no backslash, no backslash. Don't worry. Okay. The writer. Yeah. All right. Uh, and obviously this is a book that can be purchased anywhere, Amazon in the bookstore, all that kind of thing. Right. Uh, correct. You can, you can order a signed copy from Buxton books in Charleston. They'll be thrilled for the plug.
Fantastic. Well, thanks you. Thank you so much. And uh, let let me know when the next time you write a, uh, you know, when you when you try to take down somebody else that didn't hire you that I interviewed. Rob yeah. <laughs> okay, right, Rob. Well, thank you very much for having me. Take care. Self storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, as a reminder, if you have not already done so and you are an accredited investor, make sure to go join that accredited investor list, Investor Club at WealthFormula.com. Lots of exciting things coming down the pipeline. Lots of things that you will not see in the uh, general uh, emails that we get so, uh, so definitely go do that. And uh, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.